Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's health care. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. In today's episode, we are going to talk about hospice care. A few months ago, a longtime reader of the site sent me a really interesting question about hospice. Her mother and aunt had both had dementia had been on hospice, and this reader actually had serious concerns about the medications that the hospice team used in both cases before her relatives died. And namely, she had concerns about her relatives being given morphine and lorazepam. The brand name for that is Adafan. These are controlled substances, uh, which are actually quite commonly used in hospice but should be used carefully. And this reader was concerned that perhaps her relatives had been overly sedated and that the hospice hadn't provided ideal care. So her question to me was about why did this happen and how can families identify a hospice that won't do this? And in getting her question, I realized that I hadn't yet at the time really written about hospice care and end-of-life care for better health while aging. So to answer her question, I had to write a rather long article that covered uh, what is hospice, how hospice often works for people with dementia, before I could address um, the issues related to using morphine and lorazepam and controlled substances, and what the issues might be for the situation she described. So that article was published uh, recently on Better Health While Aging, and of course, I'll link to the article in the show notes. But I think what I covered in that article is a bit too much for a single podcast episode. So I want to cover some of this instead in two episodes. And I have noticed over the years that people are often not quite clear on what hospice is and when it might be time for hospice. Many people have heard of hospice and know that it has something to do with healthcare for people who are dying, but I've seen that people have a lot of uh, misunderstandings and misconceptions. And then there's also a lot of confusion about hospice for uh, when it comes to um, a condition such as Alzheimer's disease or related dementia, these conditions that progress very, very slowly. And lastly, I've noticed that there's often a lot of confusion about the difference and relationship between hospice and palliative care. So in this episode, I want to help you better understand some of those issues. And specifically in this episode, we're going to talk about what hospice exactly is and what is palliative care and how the two are related. And then I'll address some issues specific to hospice for people with Alzheimer's or related dementias, including how the stages of Alzheimer's progress, the difference between very advanced dementia and quote-unquote terminal dementia, and how to know when it might be time for hospice care. I do think that in general, hospice is a really wonderful service for patients and families. I've seen a lot of families really appreciate the care, even though sometimes families also end up with concerns, as is the case for uh, the reader who sent in the question. So I think it's really important to understand 
this service and how it can be helpful to older adults and families, and especially older adults who have Alzheimer's or another dementia. So that's what we'll cover in this episode. And then in an upcoming episode, I'll address some of the specifics of the reader's question relating to the use of controlled substances like morphine and lorazepam. And we'll talk about how to choose a hospice and work well with them and what to do if you're concerned about their use of medications or anything else related to hospice care. So let's get started. The basics of hospice and palliative care. So what exactly is hospice and how is it related to palliative care? People often confuse the two terms, so I really want to help you understand this a little bit better. Fundamentally, hospice is a philosophy and approach to healthcare that is designed to support people who are dying. And because the approach to part of the approach to hospice is to acknowledge openly that the person is dying and that we're there to help them through that experience with as much comfort and support as possible, that just mind shift on the part of everybody makes it easier to focus on services that are specifically geared towards helping to keep people comfortable in their last days, weeks, or months, and also to attending to any emotional distress, any family stress that may be going on. So that's the approach of hospice. And in response to this approach and philosophy, which originated in the United Kingdom in the 40s and was first brought to the United States in the 60s, in the United States, the federal government eventually defined a Medicare benefit of hospice. And so in the United States, if you are a Medicare beneficiary, hospice is a specific package of services that you can have once you are enrolled in hospice. And a little bit later on, I'll explain uh, what makes people eligible for hospice and how that process gets started. So now what about palliative care? Well, people often conflate hospice and palliative care. And actually just now when I Googled palliative care, Google told me that palliative care was care for the terminally ill and their families, especially that provided by an organized health service. Now, I don't agree with this definition Because actually to get palliative care, you don't necessarily have to be terminally ill, and it doesn't necessarily have to be provided by an organized health service. So what is palliative care? And this is a topic that we discussed in episode 25 with Amy Berman, who has been using palliative care for the past several years to live better despite her having advanced cancer. So Palliative care. Palliative care means specialized health care that is focused on providing people with relief from the symptoms, the pain, the physical stress, and the mental stress of having a serious diagnosis, usually one that is what we call life-limiting, meaning it might or likely will cause premature death. So people often think of cancer for this, but there are actually many other conditions that cause people a lot of symptoms, a lot of distress, and where palliative care can be helpful. So for instance, people who have advanced lung disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, sometimes called COPD, will be short of breath often. And this is a condition that over the years will end their life, actually, if something else doesn't. So that's a condition that can benefit from palliative care services. Same goes for advanced heart failure, or even severe autoimmune disease, basically anything that causes people a lot of pain and physical distress, emotional distress, 
and can be life-threatening is something that can be addressed by palliative care. Um, but you could also say that in a way, anytime that we focus on the symptoms of a condition and ask ourselves, how can we help this person feel better, live better, we're applying the principles of palliative care. And because providing such services does require sort of a specific skill set and also mindset, it has become a specialty in the United States. And so we do have clinicians who are trained in palliative care, who are board certified in palliative care, but it is possible for other clinicians to also provide such services. And in geriatrics, we do train in palliative care during our fellowship. So specific skills and things that are involved in palliative care include one, goals of care conversations. So these are sort of big picture conversations when we sit with a person and first of all, ask to know how they see their health situation and how they understand it, because that's really important for understanding and talking about what people want out of their medical care and are expecting out of it. You have to start by learning more about how they see it, because often patients might have a different perspective on their health situation than the doctors might. So in palliative care, um, we often discuss the overall big picture and, and talk about a person's goals of care. Palliative care often also has a big focus on symptom management, on asking about bothersome symptoms, and then they have the expertise to relieve them. Palliative care clinicians are often usually trained in communication and in discussing difficult topics so that uh, they're better able to bring up and discuss the possibility of a life-ending illness and a further decline. They're generally good at discussing prognosis, what to expect, how much time might be left, which is always an estimate, by the way. Nobody ever knows for sure, but it's important to at least discuss it. And then also within palliative care, there is hospice, which is really kind of a special package and subset within palliative care. And then also palliative care clinicians do usually have expertise in managing the, the symptoms that come up during the last hours and days as people are dying. So what is not required for palliative care is that the patient be actually likely to die within the next six or 12 months. And palliative care also, this is very important, doesn't mean that the patient and family have to abandon the pursuit of care that is uh, that they're hoping will be curative or might prolong their life. Whereas in hospice, part of enrolling in hospice is everybody acknowledging that the person is is dying or is likely to die within the next in the United States. It's supposed to be within the next six months, and um, so making that acknowledgement and then usually not really trying to continue to pursue curative or life-prolonging treatments, and instead focusing on helping the person be as comfortable and feel as well as possible during whatever time they have left. So people sometimes tell me, well, my mom is on palliative care. And at that time, I'm often a little unsure because is that person actually on hospice, meaning that there's been an open acknowledgement that they are likely to die within six months and that that's the focus of the medical care? Or is it that they've been seen by a palliative care specialist and are getting some services to help them with their symptoms, with their distress, to talk about the big picture, and they may or may not be on hospice. And importantly, there are people who want that kind of symptom care and may not be eligible for hospice because it's not yet clear that they're likely to die within six months. 
So to summarize, hospice is an approach and package of services for people who are likely to die within six months, and that has been brought up and acknowledged by the patient, by the doctors, whereas palliative care means medical care that is focused on relief of symptoms and often on helping people understand the big picture of their health, think about their goals of care, and plan for what to expect in the future. And if there's still any confusion about that, please post a comment in the show notes and I'll try to clarify further. Now let's focus on hospice in particular. And since I'm a doctor in the United States, I'm going to focus on on what it involves in the United States. So Medicare does cover hospice services for its beneficiaries and then most forms of insurance for people who are not on Medicare will also offer hospice services. So what does hospice care usually involve? So it's usually provided by a team, and that's often true for palliative care too, a team because different people with different kinds of training and background can provide complementary services. So hospice care usually involves the following. So one is clinical services to address the terminally ill person's physical, emotional, social, and spiritual needs. Usually the medical services are provided by nurses who assess the symptoms and provide directions on how to use medications or other therapies to alleviate those symptoms. And the symptoms will be, excuse me, and the medications will be prescribed by the hospice medical director or by a nurse practitioner if the hospice team has a nurse practitioner. The hospice team usually includes social workers to talk about the uh, emotional situation and also some of the living aspects with the patient and family. There may be other counselors, there may be other types of therapists um, involved, and then sometimes there are other staff members such as home health aides who can come and uh, they won't be there 24-7. So hospice care is often provided in people's homes, but otherwise can be provided in special inpatient units. And so when it's in the home, hospice can sometimes send a home aide to assist with bathing or some other uh, forms of assistance, but they won't send somebody there 24-7. So that's an important thing to, to realize. Usually if a dying person needs help 24-7 and the family can't provide it, then they'll have to consider an inpatient hospice unit. So other aspects of hospice care is, again, that special attention and expertise to managing difficult or uncomfortable symptoms. Um, The most common ones at the end of life are pain, shortness of breath, anxiety, constipation, nausea, agitation. And then depending on what's the illness causing the person's death, there may be other particular symptoms which the hospice clinicians are usually experienced in managing. Another very important aspect of hospice care is that there should be a focus on optimizing quality of life. And I think it was Dr. Atul Gawande who wrote about this in his book, Being Mortal, that, you know, there's this emphasis on like, what's a good day for you? And how can we help you have more of those good days, whether it's more time with family or uh, more time doing some kind of special activity? So hospice teams are supposed to inquire as to the dying person's desires and what are things that would be especially important or valuable to do during this remaining time, and then try to help enable that. 
And then hospice also is usually oriented towards serving the needs of the entire family. So there's a lot of focus on the dying person, but also on supporting the family for whom it's usually a, a huge struggle to see a loved person dying. And um, so both practical support in terms of how to help take care of them, but also a lot of emotional support and counseling as uh, needed. And then also hospice usually includes some grief counseling and bereavement support after the person's death. Other services provided by hospice include providing medical supplies and equipment, um, such as a hospital bed, which can be really helpful for supporting a dying person in the home, or sometimes a bedside commode or wheelchair. And then last but not least, a service that hospice offers that many families really appreciate is, is not only that the clinicians come to the home, but usually there's a number that you can call 24-7 if you have any questions or concerns, and you can talk to a nurse and get some advice. And most people really appreciate that ability to talk to a professional at any moment when they have concerns. So in the United States, Medicare hospice services are provided by certified agencies or organizations. Some of them are specifically for hospice. Others will be home health agencies. And those are agencies, by the way, that provide skilled medical services, so nurses and therapists, not just a home aid to help with activities of daily living. So many home health agencies will also are also certified to provide hospice services and can do this. And then I mentioned that hospice services are often provided in the home, but they can also be provided in assisted living and in nursing homes. So how do you actually get hospice services? So the way hospice services are initiated is that a doctor, usually the patient's primary care doctor, but sometimes it can be a hospital doctor or a specialist as well, a doctor has to make a referral to a hospice agency. And in the referral, the doctor has to certify that the patient is terminally ill and is likely to live no more than six months if the terminal illness runs its natural course. And then the doctor should also provide some additional uh, medical notes or information to support that claim and should specify what the terminal illness is. So once a doctor sends a referral to a hospice agency, um, there's an intake process where the hospice agency reviews the information and can even send a clinician to visit the patient and assess them. And then the hospice medical director, every hospice has a medical director, a physician, has to agree with the referring physician that the person is likely to die within six months, and then hospice services can be initiated. If you want to learn more about how hospice works, I'll share a link in the show notes to a useful Medicare page that explains you know, exactly how it works and how things are paid for and what happens to coverage for your, uh, your other conditions. So those are the basics of hospice and palliative care. Now, let's talk about hospice for people with Alzheimer's and related dementias. Hospice services are intended to provide support and assistance no matter what illness a person is dying from. That said, in the early days, hospice was especially used for people who were dying of cancer rather than people who were dying of a very slow terminal illness such as Alzheimer's disease or even an illness with sort of intermittent worsenings, such as severe heart failure or severe lung failure. So it's probably because of this original emphasis on cancer 
that some features of Medicare's hospice benefit are actually better suited towards cancer diagnoses than other terminal illnesses. And the thing about cancer when it's um, quite advanced and late stage is that people tend to decline pretty consistently and die. Whereas with some other conditions, people get worse, but they might get better again. Or when it comes to a dementia such as Alzheimer's and related dementias, people tend to decline very, very, very slowly. And then they might have some kind of health emergency, an infection, or a worsening due to one of their other health conditions that puts them in the hospital. And suddenly they're very sick. And then from that, they may or may not get better. So it is sometimes challenging for people with dementia to be enrolled in hospice because it can just be a lot harder to tell when things have progressed to the point that they are likely to die within six months. Now, there are some, uh, based on research, there are some criteria and some signs that help us know when a person has gone from being just in very advanced dementia, and in a moment I'll talk more about what that looks like, to likely to die within the next six to 12 months. So I'm going to explain what those are in a little bit. But right now, I just want to say that even though it can be harder to tell when someone with dementia has reached the point at which they would be eligible for hospice, um, today it has become much more common for people with dementia to use hospice services at the end of life. In 2014, 15% of hospice admissions were for dementia. And research suggests that in people with advanced dementia, hospice usually does improve care and symptoms at the end of life. So it probably is worth doing. It's a way to get a person better healthcare, healthcare that's better oriented towards relieving their symptoms and helping them through that very last stage of life. So if you are caring for someone with Alzheimer's or another dementia, I just want to be clear that despite the concerns we're going to talk about in the upcoming episode, on the whole, I think hospice is a good choice for most patients and families when they reach that point. And we're going to go into the details on that in just a moment, when they reach that point at which they seem likely to die within six to 12 months. So how do you know when it comes to Alzheimer's or related dementia when it is time for hospice? Basically, we rely on kind of two types of criteria. The first is that the person should clearly be in the latest stages of Alzheimer's. And in a moment, I'll explain how you know when you've reached that stage. But it's not enough just to be in that stage of very advanced Alzheimer's because people can actually remain in that stage for years. So along with being in that stage of very advanced Alzheimer's, the person also should show other signs of reaching a kind of turning point in terms of the disease taking over their body. And those signs are basically either having repeated infections or having severe pressure sores that aren't improving or starting to lose a lot of weight. And Medicare actually clarifies this to sort of help clinicians make the determination of whether a person is eligible for hospice. Online, they actually have a document that's called Local Coverage Determination, LCD. And there's one on hospice and determining terminal status. And I have a link to it in the article. It's quite technical. But actually, uh, if you have any kind of background in health or are up to wading through a technical document, it actually describes the sort of signs that somebody might be eligible for hospice for a variety of serious conditions, including dementia, so can be useful if you're interested in learning more about that. So what does Medicare say about being eligible for hospice when you have dementia? 
What Medicare says is that patients will be considered to be in the terminal stage of dementia, life expectancy of six months or less, if they meet the following criteria. One, they should show the following characteristics, stage seven or beyond, according to the functional assessment staging scale. And I will tell you more about that scale in just a moment. Two, they should be unable to ambulate, that means walk, without assistance. They should be unable to dress without assistance. They should be unable to bathe without assistance. They should have incontinence, uh, either urinary or of bowel, either all the time or occasionally. And lastly, and this is perhaps especially easy for people to notice, they should have no consistently meaningful verbal communication. So they should either... Uh, they should either be not speaking at all or just mumbling a handful of words, none of which are particularly meaningful and responsive. And what I've described right there are the characteristics of severe Alzheimer's or dementia. So let's talk very briefly about the stages of dementia. People get confused about the stages, and that's partly because in medicine, we use at least three different methods for staging dementia. Uh, I've actually described them in a short article on Better Health While Aging, which I will link to. But the most common stage that we use in clinical care, just for routine care, is the three stages of mild dementia or mild Alzheimer's, uh, which we sometimes call early stage Alzheimer's, moderate, sometimes called middle stage, and then severe, sometimes called late stage. And what they basically correspond to is that in mild, people need help with what we call the instrumental activities of daily living, those skills that you learn as a teenager to live independently. You're managing your transportation, your finances, your shopping, but they're still able to walk and talk and usually get dressed. They're just kind of, you know, at some level of confusion or difficulty with their memory, which means they're unable to do those more complicated skills we learn as teenagers. In moderate stage dementia, people start to have difficulty with those fundamental skills that usually we've learned in childhood, um, you know, in earlier childhood, you know, getting dressed correctly, bathing yourself correctly, getting to and from the bathroom. And then as the Alzheimer's or related dementia progresses, people will actually start to have difficulty walking on their own and they'll be less and less able to talk and recognize people. So those are, you know, the kind of three stages that we often use just when we write things down in our notes. But several years ago, a doctor developed a more involved stage, which he called um, the FAST scale, Functional Assessment Staging Scale. I have a link to one version of it in my article on stages of Alzheimer's and dementia. But if you look at the online Medicare document on determining hospice eligibility, at the end in the appendix, they actually list the FAST scale in detail. And they point out that the scale was developed by Dr. Reisenberg, who did observe that the decline typical of Alzheimer's disease is the flip side of normal skill acquisition by infants, children, and young adults. So again, first you lose the kind of teenager skills, and then you lose the preschooler skills, and then eventually you lose, unfortunately, the toddler skills. You lose the ability to walk and talk. So on his scale, his scale has uh, seven stages. And on his scale, um, stage one is being a normal aging adult with no functional decline. Stage two is having some personal awareness of a little bit of memory decline. Stage three would correspond to early Alzheimer's disease. 
Stage four is kind of a little bit further along in the mild early Alzheimer's. Stage five is moderate Alzheimer's. Stage six is moderately severe. And stage seven is severe. So again, in stage seven, which corresponds to quite late stage or severe Alzheimer's or dementia, the person can't walk and doesn't talk meaningfully and usually is dependent upon others for all activities of daily living. So for getting dressed and for bathing, for moving from a chair to the bed. And often one of the um, last things people can do is put the spoon to their mouth, Um, but eventually they lose the ability to do that. They have to be spoon fed. And then towards the end, they start to have difficulty swallowing. So that is um, late stage or severe Alzheimer's disease, and it can last for years. And that's why being in that very late stage, even if the person is uh, lying there, doesn't recognize anybody, doesn't speak, and has to be spoon-fed, that may not qualify them for hospice because we do know that people can remain in that stage for years. To qualify for hospice, they have to have other signs that the body is really starting to break down namely recurrent infections such as pneumonia or urinary tract infections that spread or pressure sores, pressure wounds that persist and that we can't kind of prevent or recover by turning the person. So those are signs of recurrent infection and then otherwise it would be difficulty um, maintaining the weight. So when people start to lose weight, that can qualify them for hospice. Now, is every person with Alzheimer's on hospice like this? The answer is no, and the reason for that is that many people who have Alzheimer's or a related dementia also have other chronic conditions. And so sometimes they become eligible for hospice based on those other conditions. So for instance, they could develop cancer that advances to the point that they're losing weight, and either the cancer can't be treated or they and their family may decline treatment. They may have said previously that once they had reached a stage of Alzheimer's, where they needed a lot of help that they didn't want treatment for cancer or other conditions. So, uh, and that's a reasonable choice that some people might make. So there are some people with Alzheimer's who have cancer or who have advanced heart disease or lung disease or other sort of conditions that are causing them to decline. And so their Alzheimer's may not be that advanced, but due to those other conditions, they might qualify for hospice. So that's one way that people with Alzheimer's can be on hospice yet not be at that very, very late stage that I was describing before. And then the other thing that I have seen happen quite a lot is that somebody who will have, let's say between moderate and severe Alzheimer's, someone who needs help uh, walking around and is quite forgetful and talks just a little bit and needs help with most activities of daily living, but is not you know, has not reached the point at which they're completely unable to interact with other people. So sometimes a person like that will get sick from something. And sometimes it can be like the flu or um, a stomach bug or a urinary tract infection um, that goes awry. So they'll get quite sick and they'll go to the hospital and they'll get much worse while in their hospital. And even though their infection will resolve, they'll be um, much less responsive and awake after the illness. So 
sometimes those people are put on hospice. And I think it's actually not unreasonable because we don't know if they're going to recover or not. And the wonderful thing about hospice is you get all these additional services that are really great. People come to your house and they often stop all these other medications that people might be on, which may be totally unnecessary and not all that helpful you know, like the medication for their cholesterol and their blood pressure and and all these things that probably don't matter that much at that time. And they'll focus just on on pain control and keeping the person comfortable. And what happens not infrequently is that a fair amount of those people get better. (laughs) And then in six months or nine months, they end up being discharged from hospice, you know, sometimes taking away all that other stuff that had been left on um, does people well. So we do see that happen as well. But I don't think that means that starting hospice was a bad choice. It's just that since hospice services can be uh, so attentive to symptoms and quality of life, sometimes that's enough to help people actually recover and improve. So those are the basics of hospice for people with dementia. You should know that whether a person has Alzheimer's or not, there are a certain number of people who do uh, get better or stabilize while on hospice. They'll be discharged from hospice if at some point the hospice agency decides they no longer appear to be likely to die within six months. Or sometimes they just remain on hospice for longer than six months. In the United States, when you are enrolled in hospice, you have uh, you start off with two 90-day periods. So you get three months of hospice services, and then the hospice reassesses you and your prognosis and usually decides to do another 90 days of hospice. And then after those two 90-day periods, you actually have to be reassessed for your life expectancy and prognosis every 60 days. And there are some people who, for a year, um, you check every two months, and they st- it still looks like they'd be likely to die within six months, and that is okay. But some hospices have come under criticism and been investigated by the federal government for keeping people on for years, and they've essentially been accused of you know a form of fraud of keeping people on their rolls and getting paid when you know upon further investigation it didn't seem that the person was actually all that likely to die within six months. So. In some ways, the evaluating people for their eligibility has become a little bit more stringent in the past, I would say, sort of seven years in the United States. But still, overall, a good service. And I guess in closing, I'm just going to talk about a few misconceptions that families I've worked with have had about um, hospice. And I think the main one that I have encountered is... Well, first of all, there's the misconception when you offer people palliative care, they'll think that you're talking about hospice and that you mean the person is going to die within six months or that the person has to accept that they're going to die within six months. So that's not true. Often we suggest palliative care just because we see that the person is having a lot of uncomfortable symptoms. Or if the person seems to be just in this bad situation with a lot of specialists or serious illness, and it sort of doesn't seem that anyone has really sat down and talked with a person about everything that's going on and everything that might happen and what they want their goals to be. Palliative care clinicians can be very good at that. And now in the United States, many hospitals actually have palliative care consultation teams who can come and talk with families, which can be a wonderful service, or sometimes they're available in the outpatient setting. And sometimes they're available in cancer clinics or in clinics that are specifically for people with pretty severe life-threatening illnesses. So that's one misconception. 
is that palliative care means hospice, and it doesn't. In terms of hospice, what I found is that some of my patients' families have assumed that you only need hospice if the dying person is really uncomfortable and like needs morphine. So sometimes I've had to push a little bit to encourage hospice, you know, and I've had the family saying, yeah, but you know, they're comfortable. We don't need hospice. And I still encourage hospice because what almost always happens is that once they start getting those additional services, the person coming to the house and the nurses and social workers available to talk to the rest of the family and realizing that there's a number you can call 24 hours a day, even if the dying person isn't having a lot of difficult symptoms like terrible pain or shortness of breath, even when there isn't a really substantial need for the symptom control, people tend to find that that comprehensive package of services that is taking care of the whole family, that it's really helpful. So I feel that if, you know, one, the person seems likely to die within six months, and two, the patient and the family are able to talk about that and acknowledge that, that signing up for hospice is almost always a good idea, even if you don't think they particularly need a lot of morphine or medications or interventions for difficult symptoms. And I'm going to stop there for now. So again, in the upcoming episode, we will talk more specifically about the use of morphine and lorazepam. They are medications that are very commonly used in hospice. And so I'd be happy to tell you more about why they're used and how ideally they would be used. And then we can sort of talk about ways to troubleshoot things if you're concerned about how they're used, how to find in general a good hospice and what to do if you're concerned. So that'll be for a future episode. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in the episode, you can post it on the show notes page for this episode. I'll also be posting some of the links to some of the resources that we mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show in iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Kernison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.